0: Welcome to Worship with Dawson Memorial Baptist Church. At Dawson, we seek to be found faithful as God's people as we become and help others become faithful servants of Jesus Christ. Now join us as we worship God through the teaching of His Word in today's message. Church, as we continue to worship, would you take your copy of God's Word? Turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 11, 2 Samuel chapter 12. Also this morning is going to be our guide those of you that were driving in this morning, obviously you saw that there's been certainly much damage that occurred in the Homewood area, not only the Homewood area, but Mountain Brook and parts of Estavia and Hoover and across the Birmingham metro area. We're certainly in prayer for those that are waking up this morning who have had damage to their property and to their homes. We think about those in neighboring states that had tremendous tornadic activity yesterday. And so we want to pray for God's peace, just as Dan was praying. We want to pray for his peace in the midst of what is a disturbing kind of sort of chaotic time where we're once again reminded of, of the power of nature. And once again, we're reminded of our place in that. So let's pray for the recovery efforts that are going even right now and pray for those that are getting tree limbs off their homes and trees off their homes and property and all of the that entails. And I know that's where your heart is, as it is my heart also. There's a song that is a little bit older than I want to think that it is. I continue to think things are a year old or two years old, but Anytime I say there's a recent Paul Simon song, it's probably a good indication that's not a recent song, but there is a Paul Simon song called Rewrite, and it's off of one of his more recent albums, and it has just that song, Rewrite, with these lyrics. I'm working on a rewrite, that's right, going to change the ending. I'm going to throw away the title and toss it into the trash. It's a song about the perils of your life and my life when it comes to those sentences and paragraphs, and dare I say chapters, that we would like to rewind and to rewrite. It's a stark reminder to us that, that life doesn't give us a delete button, does it? It doesn't give us a backspace button. It doesn't give us an edit button. All of us have sentences and paragraphs. We all have chapters of our life. But there's no other way to look at it, but these these are areas in our life that we wish we could rewind and we wish we could rewrite. And the consequences of that are consequences that we live with. And the question is, is what do we do After those sentences and after those paragraphs, what happens when we can't go back in time, but how do we go forward in forgiveness? How do we go forward in the grace and the mercy that only God can give us in those sentences and those paragraphs and those chapters that are low points of our life and at times are foolish and sinful points in our life? I'm going to give you something better this morning than a rewrite. I'm going to give you something better this morning than a redo. I'm going to give you the grace and the mercy of a God who loves you and knows every, every letter of that sentence of your life. Knows every detail of the sentence of that paragraph and chapter of your life. But yet he extends his love. He extends his mercy to us. And we see that even in our story that we're walking through this morning in the life of David in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Hey, thousands of years before a Paul Simon song, we got a chapter in David's life that is a low point. It is a sinful chapter. It is a chapter that starts with laziness, that morphs into lust that moves into an abuse of power, takes advantage of Bathsheba. There is a cover-up that ends in the death of Uriah, but not just the death of Uriah, but the death of these other innocent soldiers. And David, in in this moment, at the end of 2 Samuel chapter 11, he, he wipes his hands clean, thinking, I have covered up my tracks. No one will know. Second Samuel chapter 11 and verse 26, we read when the wife of Uriah, I just remind you, that's Bathsheba, heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead. She lamented over her husband. And when the mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. Mission accomplished, right? David has covered his tracks. No no one will know. He's had the perfect cover-up to the scandal that would rock the kingdom here. And he's controlled it as this ultimate puppet master throughout all of this, except the last sentence that is a stark contrast to all that has come before it. Verse 27, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. It's the first time we See the Lord in all of chapter 11. It's it's only one mention of the Lord in all of chapter 11. Right here, the last sentence. And then we turn to chapter 12, and we're met with the Lord sent Nathan to David. I don't want you to skip over this too quickly here, because the, the artist and the writer is artistically weaving this contrast In chapter 11, David's doing all the sending. In chapter 11, we start out with David sending Joab and the Israelites to fight his battle that he should be leading. He sends for Bathsheba to come his way. He fetches Uriah from the front lines to bring him back on this furlough here. He sends a letter with Uriah to the front lines, which was really a, a suicide death sentence for Uriah. He sends for Bathsheba here, and then we meet God doing the sending. God takes center stage in chapter 12. There's no royal exemption. For the truth, even for David, his sins will find him out. David has been the puppet master. He's pulling all the strings behind the corners and behind uh, uh, the, the, the doors that are closed here. He's answerable to no one. He's accountable to no one. And then the Lord sends Nathan. And it's a reminder that no one eludes the omniscient eye of our God, no matter how high we are, no matter how tall we are, no matter how powerful we are, God sees, God knows, God judges, God holds all to account. And I want you to know that is actually good news. It is easy in this world to be sort of disheartened and discouraged because you can look back over the annals of history. You can look back even in your life and you can see some people that just seem to elude justice there's some wrongs that, that don't have easy rights this side of heaven. And there are times that you say, hey, there's some people, their actions, they derail people's lives. And they actually destroy people's lives. And they've left this trail of pain behind them. And the people in their wake, it just seems to be there's no consequences. They get off scot-free here. You think of a politician, you think of a business mogul, you think of an executive, you think of a family member, maybe even your own face comes to mind in this moment and it just kind of sort of gets off scot-free. But Here's the king of Israel, the most powerful person in the land who has to answer to the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And it is a reminder that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And God sends the prophet Nathan. And Nathan doesn't come in the front door, my friends, He he doesn't bust down the door saying repent or else. He he comes in the side door, proverbially. He says, let me tell you a story. And Nathan skillfully parallels all of the intricate details of David's story in chapter 11. All of his cover up in the simple story. Nathan says, let me tell you, there was a poor man who had a little lamb. And that little lamb was like a daughter to him. And there was this rich neighbor who seized the lamb. And not only did they seize the lamb, but they served the lamb to the guest. And David cannot believe the audacity of this rich neighbor. He is undone by what he hears. And he says in verse 5 of 2 Samuel 12, that David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the land fourfold because he did this thing. And because he had no pity, Nathan said to David, you are the man. It's you, David. You are the man. Four words in our English Bible that pierce the heart of King David. Nathan doesn't belittle King David. He doesn't berate the king. He doesn't call him to repentance. And this strong, he tells a story that appeals to the sense of his justice. And there was this old Scottish preacher years ago who said that Nathan's sword was within an inch of David's conscience before David knew that Nathan had drawn the sword. It's a reminder that the prophet is a voice piece of the Lord. The prophet is giving the word of the Lord to David here. And it's a reminder that the word doesn't come back void, church. Do you see how Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 is coming to fruition in the life of David here? For the word of God is living and active. It was living and active for David. It was sharper than any two-edged sword pierced into the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow and of discerning the thoughts And intentions of the heart, even the heart of the most powerful person in the land, King David. A king who had wandered so far from God's will and God's way, God's path and God's plan for his life. And what is David's response when he is broken in this moment? When this this recognition comes before him through the words of the prophet and the word of God, David said to Nathan, verse 13, I have sinned against God. The Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Now it's tempting. It's tempting to say, Great story. Let's tell it in a Sunday school. Great story, let's preach it. Great story, vacation Bible school kind of story. And it's really easy for you to keep David at arm's length. It's very easy for you to say, interesting history lesson for us. But it's not a history lesson, church. It is the Word of God that is living and active. And it is a story not just about a wayward king, but it is a story about wayward us. We, we know the footprints of King David. Of, of course, our sin is most likely not so public. Of course, our sin is not uh, most likely not so egregious. But I mean, we're not the king of Israel. We, we, we don't have that ability here, living 2,000, 3,000 years down the road here. But we know what it is to be pulled by sin. We know what it is to wander from the path here. We know what it is to stray. And so how do we, after we stray, how do we, after we sin, move forward in life? Well, David shows us that first we must admit our failures to God. We must admit our sin to God. Again, verse 13, 2 Samuel chapter 12, David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. Many of you know this, but there's a corollary passage that goes together. I mean, there are heads and tails to 2 Samuel chapter 12. And that's what? It's Psalm 51. That is the psychological exploration. It is David's prayer in the midst of his returning to God and receiving forgiveness from God here. And Psalm 51, verse 4 goes together with verse 13 of 2 Samuel 12. Against you, David says, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, I have a feeling there's somebody in the sanctuary that wants to raise your hand and say, David, I protest. H- hold up, David. Super pious David here. You sinned only against the Lord? Are you going to be you only against the Lord? What about Bathsheba? What about Uriah? What about all the other innocent soldiers? You want to add them to that list here? What about the moms and the dads, the husbands and the wives that you've sinned against here? Can we add them to the litany here? But I want you to see that David's heart Yes, his sin against Uriah was horrendous. His sin against Bathsheba is shameful. Yes, it is sin, no doubt here. But the greatest affront of David's actions is an affront to the holiness of God. And if if we miss this, we miss how we receive forgiveness. We miss what we need to be forgiven of. You see, our sin, first and foremost, is not against one another. Our sin, first and foremost, is an affront to the holiness, justice, and perfection of a God who has created us and loves us. David has been through so much under the loving hand of God. He has called him as a lowly shepherd, put him on the path to the palace, He's paved it with a victory over that heavyweight champion that we know to be Goliath. He has protected David, where he has this jealous, maniacal Saul that is chasing after him for years of his life. He brings him into the palace, expands the kingdom, gives him victory over all of his enemies here. And David, as a a response to the gratitude of all that God has done, David takes because what God has given to David is not enough. And if we don't see that that the motivation of our sin is so similar to this, our sin is saying to God, God, you're just not enough. And what you've entrusted to us is not enough. And your word is not enough. This is the motivation of sin. Now, we don't like to talk about sin. When you go back 50 years, Carl Menninger, famous psychiatrist, wrote a book that was at a moment sort of went viral before it could go viral. It was on the cover of Newsweek and Time Magazine. The simple title of the book was Whatever Happened to Sin? 70s. This is 50 years ago. They were asking the question, we we have a hard time talking about sin. We want to minimize sin. If that was true in the 1970s, how much more so is that true in my life and your life? What we live in a day and age that we, we, we don't have the ability to talk about these three letters that come up with this one word that is sin, but it lives so deep inside of us. And when we minimize sin, do not miss this. We are minimizing the perfection And holiness of God. When we do not take sin seriously, we're not taking God's holiness seriously. And if we don't take sin seriously, we cannot truly gather together and sing the Christmas carols with any sense of meaning. Why why did Jesus come to this earth? To help you just have a more fulfilling life, to give you a better vocation? To let you be more upperly mobile? No. Jesus came into this world because we have a sin problem. And so the Bible teaches us for our sake, David's sake, your sake, my sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God this is the purpose behind Christmas. This is the purpose of the incarnation. We are enslaved to sin. We're entranced by sin. We are dead in our sin, and we need someone who can rescue us. David needed a rescuer. I need a rescuer. You need a rescuer. Over hundred years ago, there was an African-American spiritual that many of you know, were you there when they crucified the Lord? It's an ominous, sort of haunting song that poses this question again and again in a rhetorical way, wanting you to answer, yes, I was. Of course, you weren't a Roman soldier living 2,000 years ago, but the question is, is, is a question that wants you to realize that it is your sin and my sin that nails Jesus to the cross. A few years back, a couple of decades ago, there was a movie called The Passion of the Christ where it was this vivid and at times painful to watch depiction of the last days of Jesus's life. There's a very haunting scene that when I heard sort of the background behind it, it, it has stuck with me even now. It is a scene of Jesus' very execution where he's upon the cross and, and you see the Roman executioner nailing the spikes into his wrists and to his feet. And it's in that moment that the director of the mu- movie, it's his hands that you see being filmed nailing Jesus upon the cross. And it's a reminder to all of us. Yes, we were there when they crucified the Lord. We were there because it is our sin, David's sin, our sin that nails him to the cross. So we admit that sin is not something to be taken lightly. It is our sin that nails Jesus to the cross. And so we admit our sin to a holy God. But more than that, we receive forgiveness from God. Now notice that, that David doesn't have this magic eraser wand that all the consequences are gone. Actually the opposite here. Nathan tells him in verses 9 through 12 in 2 Samuel 12 that his family is going to be afflicted with conflict. There's going to be insurrection. His wives are going to be humiliated. I mean, this is a preview of coming attractions of what lies before us in 2 Samuel to the end of the book. I mean, it is a painful unspooling of all of these consequences that, that come before David here. It is the judgment of God. But in the midst of the judgment of God, church there is really, really good news. And the good news is, verse 13, the Lord has put away your sin. Guess what, David? You shall not die. David deserved to die. David deserves the penalty of death because of the weight of his sins here. Again, go back to Psalm 51. As David's pleading for God, he says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from sin. Verse 7, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you've broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. David receives the forgiveness of God, not because David really was sorrowful for his sin. It isn't, do you see this in this passage? David doesn't twist the arm of God, nor does David come to God and say, hey, I'll make a deal with you, God. If you will forgive me of this, I promise you the next 20 years of my life, you've got him here. David isn't making a deal with God. David doesn't have anything to deal with God on other than the mercy and forgiveness of God. He just pleads. He has nothing to bring. He's asking God to purge him of his sin, to wash him and to make him whole with hyssop. There's some movie buffs in here, I'm sure. And some of you have have gone through a period where you maybe watch all the Alfred Hitchcock movies. And if you watch the Hitchcock movies, you know that somewhere in the movie, the director, really unique director, he's going to have a little cameo. It's just, it's easy. You'll miss it if you blink. If you, Certainly, if you don't know what he looks like, you're not going to see it. Sometimes Hitchcock is just hopping on a bus at a bus stop. Other times he's sort of the taxi driver there and you just have to know him and you see him and it's three or four seconds and on these goes. Now, some of you are not old enough to watch Hitchcock, you've not watched the Hitchcock movies. And so maybe you're here and you're, you say, well, that sounds familiar. Another director that has done that's all the Marvel movies that's taken the, the uh, originator of many of the Marvel characters, Stan Lee, and has put Stan Lee as a cameo into many of the Marvel movies. So same principle here. You, you, it's just three seconds, four seconds, but if you know what he looks like, you'll see him in a crowd, you'll see him doing something, and there he is. He enters into the story. I tell you that to say, in the midst of the judgment, in the midst of the forgiveness, there are some gospel cameos in this passage. But we have to have antennas sort of Christocentric antennas to hear it. And I want you to see it in this passage here. In Psalm 51, he says, what does he say? Purge me with hyssop. That that word is only used two other times. One in the book of Exodus, where the hyssop is, is placed in the lamb's blood in the Exodus account, and the Israelites are coming out of Egypt, and with the hyssop drenched in blood, is spread over the doorpost as the angel of the Lord passes over where the blood covers the Israelites' homes. Another time, the hyssop is used to cleanse one of leprosy here. So notice what David is saying. And hear the gospel being previewed in this, David is saying, I need something that will free me from the slavery of sin, like the Israelites in slavery in Egypt. I need something. I need someone to heal me. From the leprous disease of my own sin, and he knows literal hyssop cannot do this, what is David crying out for? It's what all of us cry out for. We're crying out for someone to blot out our iniquities, someone to create in us a clean heart. And I'm here to tell you there is one who can do that, and that person is the true Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. The one who can create a clean heart in us, the one who can wash us as white as snow, who can cleanse the sin stenched heart of all of us here. The only one that can do that is Jesus the beauty of the gospel here is David is crying out to God, purge me, cleanse me, because he knows how deep his sin is. And he doesn't have the currency to be able to pay. He doesn't possess it. The penalty of sin is death because we know the wages of sin is death. We know that David deserves death here. But guess what? David doesn't die. He receives forgiveness. But there is a death in the story. It's right after verse 13. In verse 14, we read, Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Whew. I mean, this is a weighty passage. We want to say a couple of things here. One, we want to say this is descriptive of what occurs for the consequences of David's sin, but it is not prescriptive. It is not a principle that behind the death of every child are the sins of a mom and dad. That is not what this passage is teaching whatsoever. But in this moment, this happens. David lives. David deserves death under the law. He receives forgiveness. The child dies, and would you believe that maybe this is a gospel cameo? That the child dies and David lives? What does that sound like? Well, it sounds like the substitute. It sounds like the gospel. It sounds like what God's son has done. He has taken the penalty of sin upon himself. He's absorbed it on the cross. And so maybe in this passage, we just have a preview of coming attractions of the power of the cross, which the power of the cross is God's promise that no sin is so heinous that it cannot be forgiven, even David's and even yours, even mine that there's no heart that is so wicked that it cannot be redeemed. There is no sin that is so powerful that it can't be cleansed. There is no life that is unredeemable. There is no life that is too far gone. There is no one who is a lost cause. This is the potency and this is the power of the cross. This is the second Sunday of Advent. And it's the time that we talk about peace. And you know how you receive peace, it's because of the Prince of Peace, that has entered into this world and ultimately by faith resides in your heart and you're able to say these words of Isaiah, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us what? It brought us church peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. You know what this is? This is amazing love. You know our response to this is, is to say, how, how can it be, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me, for you, for us? This is how much God loves you. That his very son, but pay the penalty that I deserve to pay and you deserve to pay. This is amazing love. Let us pray. Thank you for joining us today. To learn more about our family of faith or to learn how to become a follower of Jesus, please visit DawsonChurch.org. Until next time, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.